Well, we've come now to uh, Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 7 to 15 today, Matthew eleven seven to 15, so if you would open your Bibles to that passage, and we'll read it before we begin to study it this morning. Matthew 11, starting at verse 7, but actually I want to start reading at verse 2. So Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So last time we were together and looking at Matthew, we looked at verses 2 to 6. Today we're going to look at verses 7 to 15. In verses 2 to 6, we saw John's doubts about Jesus. And he was asking, "Is was he the one to come? Is he the coming one? And Jesus' response showed that he was the coming one. And he encouraged John to believe. Not to be offended by Jesus, but rather to believe that he was the Messiah and the Christ. And in our text today, we're going to switch things around so that we're going to now ask, who is John? So we were, John was wondering, who is Jesus? Now we're going to look at who is John? John asked about Jesus. Now Jesus is going to ask about John, and then he's going to answer his own question. And we're going to see that who John is. And when we see who John is, we're going to once again see who Jesus is. And then from there, once we kind of understand both who John and Jesus are, we're going to, we're going to see the state of the kingdom that they preached about. Remember, John's message and Jesus' message was this. And actually, why don't you just turn back, go back to Matthew chapter 3. 
Looking at really verse 2, but I'll start reading in verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this is what he preached. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the kingdom of heaven is on the brink. It's about to come is the idea of that message. Repent, turn from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we saw already in Matthew that Jesus continued with that same message about the kingdom. And, and we can see that in Matthew 4 and verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so our text is going to tell us where this kingdom program is at. The kingdom has been offered, but it's suffering violence. And violent people are seizing or stealing or snatching the kingdom. And this text of ours that we're looking at in Matthew 11 is very much focused on salvation history. And that means it's maybe not as, as directly applicable to us as we might be used to in, in kind of the, the majority of the messages that we've seen through Matthew. But it will show us who Jesus is and how God's work throughout history culminates in Him. Everything kind of leads up to Christ. It's going to show us that Israel in that day that Jesus was there had a choice. Jesus the Messiah was present and they had to decide what they were going to do with Him. They could receive Him and the kingdom of heaven or they could reject Him. And this chapter, and really chapters 11 and 12, are going to show us that their decision ultimately is to reject both John and Jesus Christ. And we too, in our day, in our time, we have a choice to make. We have to make decisions based on where we are at in salvation history. First, we need to come to know who Jesus is, and then we must choose to come to Him and follow Him and be a disciple of His And then second, we must choose moment by moment to follow Him and honor Him in every decision of every day of our lives. And so as we look through this text, we're going to do so under two headings. We're going to see, first of all, the significance of John the Baptist in verses 7 to the first part of verse 11. So the significance of John the Baptist, chapter 7, or uh, chapter 11, verse 7 to 11a. And then secondly, we're going to see the situation with the kingdom of heaven in the second part of verse 11 all the way to the end in verse 15. So the the significance of the John the Baptist and secondly, the situation with the kingdom of heaven. So number one then, let's look at the significance of John the Baptist. John had sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one who is to come. And that was in verse 2. And that might have made us wonder and and maybe made the crowd wonder about John. Who is this John? Is he a a vacillating person? He's uncertain about Jesus. Is he unsure? Is he indecisive? Jesus wants to ensure as the, as his, as John's disciples leave, he wants to ensure that the crowd understands John's position. They, they want, Jesus wants everyone to understand who John the Baptist is and what his significance is in salvation history. He doesn't want them to think any less of John because of John's doubts, because really ultimately what they thought about John is, ends up being what they thought or what they think about Jesus Christ. You see, John the Baptist and Jesus go together. When we understand and believe who the one is, then we will understand and believe 
who the other is. When we understand what one of them is offering in the, uh, the offer of the kingdom, then we're going to understand what both of them together are offering and, and, and able to bring in, which is the kingdom of heaven. If John is the forerunner for the Messiah, the one described in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 and in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 and all of those other Old Testament prophecies, then if that's who John is, then Jesus is the Lord or the Messiah described in those passages. Or we could put it the other way around like this. If Jesus is the Christ, if Jesus is the Messiah, then John is his forerunner. And we'll look at those passages, Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, a little bit later on. But in verses 7 to 9, Jesus asks three questions about John. And so verse 7, we're starting there, as they went away, and and they there refers to John's disciples. The two of them we learned in Luke, there was two of them who John sent, and they came and asked Jesus uh, that question in verse 2 that we already saw. So these, these disciples of John... Ask this question on John's behalf in verse 3. And um, remember, John's in prison at this time. And so they're going to go back and and tell John what they've heard from Jesus. And so as they went away, verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he asked this question of them. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Remember, the people of Israel had gone into the wilderness of Judea to hear John preach. And large numbers of people had gathered to hear from John. And so Jesus asked them, what did you go out to see? What what were you looking for when you went out into the wilderness? And then he suggests a, a reed shaken by the wind. The wilderness around the Jordan had lots of uh, reed grass and, and they would blow freely in the wind kind of back and forth. But they didn't go into the wilderness to look at the scenery. They went to see this man named John. There's really nothing in that wilderness except for John preaching out there in the wilderness. And so a reed shaken by the wind represents the kind of person who wavers back and forth, the kind of person who has no backbone, no no strength. They they kind of go with the prevailing uh, opinion of the time. The whatever's whatever's popular, whatever way the wind is blowing, that's that's kind of a person who's represented by a reed shaken in the wind. This is someone who tells people what they want to hear. But John was the opposite of a reed shaken by the wind. He was a a teller of truth. He told the people what they needed to hear, not necessarily what they wanted to hear. And that's the reason why John was in jail. He was in jail because he told Herod that it was Herod the king that it was unlawful to marry his brother's wife. And Matthew's going to tell us about that a little bit later on. And I thought now would be a good time to kind of take a little bit of an aside and just talk about Herod and why John's in jail. So turn to Matthew 14 and let's look at verse, starting at verse 1. And this will show us that John was no reed shaken in the wind. So Matthew 14 and verse 1 says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch. And let's just take a moment to get this straight. Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch is probably a word that that most of us don't know. It's a word I didn't know until this week. 
Um, but you've probably heard of a monarch, right? You, so a monarch is, is a ruler, specifically a, a one ruler. Mono, one, arche is, is tied to the word of ruling and, and leading and stuff like that. And so a monarch is a one ruler. Well, tetra is a prefix that means four. So tetraarch, four rulers. And so when a kingdom was divided among four rulers, you would have a tetriarchy, not a monarchy, but a tetriarchy. There's four of them. But later on in time, that word came to be just used of a lower ruler, somebody less than the king, lower than a full king, maybe a, a, a somebody under a king or, or when a kingdom was divided. And so Herod the Tetrarch was one of those rulers. He was a, a lower ruler and he ruled over Galilee on behalf of Rome. Now this Herod is known as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. This is the Herod that it's speaking about in Matthew 14, verse 1. And, and most of the times in the Gospels, when you see Herod, that's Herod Antipas, the one that we're talking about right here. Now, Herod's dad was Herod the Great, and you've probably heard about Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who built the temple in Jerusalem. And when Herod the Great died... His kingdom, which, which really was, um, under Roman rule, but his, the, the realm that he kind of ruled over on behalf of Rome, that was divided among three of his sons. So Herod the Great had three sons. He had Herod, uh, Archelaus, Herod Philip the second, but we're just going to call him Herod Philip and Antipas. Herod Archelaus ruled for a very short time over Judea and Samaria and Idumea, and the people hated him, and they went to Rome, and I'm not going to get into all that, but they, he, he was kicked out very shortly. He was a very wicked man, and the people of, of Judea and Samaria and Idumea hated him, and they got him out. Herod Philip II ruled the area north of Galilee, and Herod Antipas ruled Galilee and Perea. Okay, so you're, you're with me, maybe, hopefully. So three, Herod the Great, three sons, divided up his kingdom amongst the three of them, and they were all called tetrarchs, even though there was only three of them, because it doesn't matter anymore if there's four. There's just three is good. They called them tetrarchs. Herod the Great had another son, who could, I guess, I don't know why, but he didn't get to have some kingdoms. So this, this fourth son that he had was named Aristobulus. And Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. I hope you guys are with me here. Herodias. So Herod the Great, daughter named Herodias. And Aristobulus's daughter Herodias married his brother, Philip II. Okay, so Herod the Great, this is kind of like doing the Mennonite uh, family game. How are you related, right? So, and, and whenever you guys do this for me, I'm like, ah, uh, I'm glad you guys are related. That's wonderful. You know, and sometimes I can follow it. I hope you can follow this. Herod the Great has these four sons. One of the sons, Aristobulus, has Herodias. Herodias marries the other son, so she marries her uncle. Um, and, and they're probably from different mothers, but I don't, I didn't get the history of all that. Anyways, Philip II married his niece, Herodias. Herodias married her uncle, Philip II. But then to make it even worse, the other brother, Herod Antipas, the other brother talked Herodias into leaving his brother Philip to marry him, just to make it even more complicated at Christmas dinner or whatever. Um, 
And that's a violation of Leviticus 18.16. Leviticus 18.16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And so John, John the Baptist, called Herod Antipas out for his sin and said, It is not lawful for you to take her to be your wife. And so let's go back. You're in Matthew 14. Let's look at verse 1 again now that you kind of have the history. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, and notice the, the tense there, had been saying like, ongoing, continually calling this guy out. He'd been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And I think the rest of this chapter or somewhere maybe later on in John, it tells the rest of the story about how um, John was beheaded because of this whole thing. So Herod Antipas was afraid that, that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. But all of that to just kind of give you a little bit of the history, that's why John's in jail. John the Baptist was no reed shaken by the wind. He was a bold and courageous prophet of the Lord who even didn't fear to call rulers out for their sin. And so... That was kind of that. Let's go back. So John is no reed shaken by the wind. And the way Jesus asked this question, he was expecting that people would say, no way, of course John was not a reed shaken by the wind. Well, next Jesus asked in verse 8, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. John was not soft. That word soft there kind of has this idea of worldliness, comfortable clothing. It even is, is the word that's sometimes used of somebody who's effeminate, but it's talking about the, the clothing here. Remember, John didn't dress in soft clothing. He, in, in wealthy clothing, he dressed like Elijah with a camel hair garment and a leather belt. And he ate locusts and wild honey. He lived in the wilderness. This wasn't a soft man. And he was in prison in the king's house, but he wasn't one of the king's men dressed in soft clothings. And so who was John? Well, verse nine. Well, what then did you go out to see? Jesus asked, what did you, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus affirms what we just read in Matthew 14, verse 5. All the people believed that John was a prophet, and now Jesus confirms that for the people. John was one who spoke God's word. And there hadn't been a prophet in Israel, remember, since Malachi in about 425 B.C. So it had been about 400 years, maybe 430 years since there had been a prophet in Israel. And Jesus says, yes, John was a prophet and he was even more than a prophet. He is greater than a prophet. He is more than a prophet, even more than a prophet. And so we ask then, well, in what way was John more than a prophet? What does it even mean to be more than a prophet? Well, he wasn't only a prophet, but he was also the subject 
of prophecy. John was prophesied about. The prophets prophesied, they foretold about John that he would be the one to prepare the way for Yahweh and Yahweh's work in Israel. And so John was not only a prophet, but he was a prophesied prophet, one who is to come for a significant thing to prepare the way for God to work in Israel. And that's what Jesus says in verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Again, that's in verse 10. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And that's a quote from Malachi chapter 3. And so I want you to turn, maybe keep your finger here in Matthew, but I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 3. And Malachi is easy to find. That's the, the, the very last book in the Old Testament, the, the very book before Matthew in the way our Bibles are laid out. So Malachi chapter 3. Now, as we read this, notice that it's the Lord who is speaking here. The capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh is speaking. So Yahweh is speaking in verse 1, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Notice that. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, notice that one is not capitalized, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit and refine, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And so Yahweh, according to Malachi 3, Yahweh is going to send his messenger, and he's going to prepare the way before Yahweh. And so in Malachi, the messenger prepares the way for Yahweh. But then when the way is prepared, the one who comes is called Lord, not capital L-O-R-D. He is called Master. He is called, the in, in Greek, Kurios, no capitals. He's, he's going to be this one who comes is going to be the messenger of the covenant. And Jesus says that John is this first messenger, this messenger who's going to come and prepare the way for Yahweh. He's going to prepare the coming of the Lord, who is also Lord. So this is a a Yahweh and master ruler. And he's going to come as as this messenger of the covenant. The the messenger of the covenant is going to come after this person, this messenger, John the Baptist, prepares the way. And so this coming God-man, right, This whoever this one is that is going to come, that the messenger prepares the way for, is going to be both Yahweh and Lord, and he's going to come and he's going to bring in the new covenant. And so that's what we get when, when Jesus quotes from this. He's telling us John is this first messenger who prepares the way for what Malachi is speaking about. Now I want you to also go to Isaiah chapter 40. So let's go and look at Isaiah 40 as we think about who is this messenger, John the Baptist. 
So let's go Isaiah 40. Look at verse, we'll, we'll look at three to five. Verse three starts, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice that Isaiah is talking about this same person who prepares the way for Yahweh. And we know now that this is John the Baptist. Both Isaiah and Malachi are speaking about John. And John was going to prepare the way for who? For Yahweh. For God himself. But when Jesus quoted Malachi in Matthew chapter 11, he didn't say that he will prepare the way before me. Look at what he says there. Let's go back there to Matthew chapter 11. Look at verse 10 again. This is he, this is he, he is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, or before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And so Jesus made the text as though God the Father was speaking to him, to Jesus. The Father is telling the Son about the messenger. And in Matthew, we've already seen that, that John is the messenger and that he prepared the way for who? Who did John prepare the way for? He prepared the way for Jesus. Remember Matthew chapter 3, we read it already, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 3 says, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, a voice Crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the way that John prepared this way in the wilderness, I heard John MacArthur say it this way once, John didn't come with a bulldozer leveling the valleys and making straight roads. He came preaching repentance to prepare the way. And so John prepared the way for the Lord, for, for Yahweh, by preaching repentance. But what's important for us to see is that that John prepared the way for Yahweh and the one that he prepared the way for was also Jesus, which tells us that Jesus was God. Jesus is Yahweh the Son, if we can say it that way. Jesus is Yahweh the Son. He is God the Son who took on human flesh to bring in the new covenant and accomplish God's plan of salvation. That's who Jesus Christ is. And I just want to show you maybe one more thing here that at least I think is really interesting. Some commentators think that the wording that Jesus used in Matthew 11.10 is actually from not only Malachi 3.1, which we already read, but also from Exodus 23.20. So Exodus 23.20 reads this way. Let Let me just quote this for you. Behold... And, and I don't know, maybe you, maybe we should turn to Exodus as well. You, you should probably need to turn there in your Bible. So go to Exodus 23. Exodus 23.20. This is again Yahweh speaking. The Lord is speaking here. It says, Behold, I send an angel... 
And this, this word angel is the same word that we see in Malachi 3.1 where, where it's translated messenger. Angel, messenger, same word in both um, Greek and Hebrew actually. But behold, I send an angel before you or I send a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So the name of Yahweh is going to be in this messenger who's the one who prepares the way for Israel as they go into the promised land. And they were to obey this messenger, this angel, this angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Remember, this is the one who appeared in the flaming fire in the cloud that, that led the way for Israel. They were to pay attention to him in the same way that they were to obey the voice of Yahweh. And so the messenger in Exodus here is, is the angel of Yahweh who went before Israel to bring them in uh, into the old covenant and, and into the promised land. And it's very likely, if not absolutely certain, that the angel of Yahweh was also God the Son, kind of a pre-incarnate um, manifestation of Jesus Christ. And so now, when God is bringing in the new covenant, God's going to prepare the way with another messenger, and that first messenger is John, who's going to prepare the way for this coming Son of God, God the Son, who is now going to be the messenger of the new covenant. And what's happening then when Jesus says this the way that he does in Matthew 11 is he's connecting himself not only with John, but also with the angel of Yahweh in the Exodus. And so this commendation of John then leads indirectly to a statement about Jesus himself and who he is. If John is the one who prepares the way, then Jesus is the Christ. If John's the one who prepares the way, then Jesus is Yahweh, God the Son, who has come and who's going to lead a new exodus by bringing in the salvation that the old covenant pointed forward to. And so I hope hope you're kind of able to kind of stick with me a little bit through all of that. The first part of verse 11 then Jesus concludes on the significance of John and he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So John is not only more than a prophet, he also then, as this messenger who prepares the way, he's also the greatest person in human history. He's the one, the one that was specially chosen by God to prepare the way for God the Son incarnate and his ministry to Israel 2,000 years ago. And so John is the greatest person who ever lived, the greatest one born of women. Now the only ones who would maybe kind of be an exception to that was Adam and Eve, who would have both been, or could have been at least greater, because Adam was, remember, made from the dust of the ground, and Eve was made from Adam. Of course, Jesus himself would be accepted in this as as the God-man. John has already told us, remember, John the Baptist told us that the one who was coming after him, the one whose way he was preparing, he was greater than him. And so that makes us think again of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If John is the greatest person ever born of a woman, and Jesus, the one who came after him, is greater than him, then that tells us about the awesome greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now in the rest of verse 11 to the end, Jesus begins to transition now from who John is to what is happening with this kingdom that John proclaimed. And so we've kind of, we've seen the significance of John the Baptist. He's this messenger that pointed forward to Jesus. That tells us how great Jesus Christ is as the one who, whose way was prepared by John. He is actually God in human flesh come to save his people from their sins. And now, secondly, we're going to see the situation with the kingdom of heaven. And that's in the second half of verse 11 to the end. And so look at the verse 11 again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now this verse and and really this whole section has given interpreters difficulty for a long time. I think the first part is easy. John is the greatest man to have arisen. Not even the, the greatest prophet, but he's the greatest man to have ever arisen. Jesus was greater as God and man. Perhaps maybe Adam again was greater as one who is not born of a woman, but made from the dust. But that's the easy part. John was the greatest. There was no one greater than John. But what's harder, and actually, let me just pause there and go back to that a little bit. Like when we, when Jesus says nobody is greater, we're like, we're talking about Elijah. We're talking about Isaiah. We're talking about all the Old Testament prophets. There wasn't a single person in all of redemptive history and all of God's plan that was greater than John, except for, of course, Jesus Christ. But now look at the second part of verse 11. This is harder. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. Now the difficulty here is especially for those who see the kingdom as something that's here and now, something that's already come and and, and been inaugurated. Many people think of the kingdom as the reign of Christ in the hearts of his people or the reign of Christ through his people. Or you'll sometimes hear people talk about the the kingdom as, as the kingdom of salvation. And the problem with that is that if the kingdom was like a spiritual reality and it was tied to salvation, if it was a a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of salvation, a spiritual thing tied with salvation, then surely John the Baptist would have been in that kingdom, right? Wouldn't John be in the kingdom? If the least person in the kingdom is greater than John, then that tells us that John is not in the kingdom. Otherwise, he would be as great as they are, right? I think that kind of just follows naturally. But if the kingdom was inaugurated by Jesus at, at this time already, if, if, the, if Jesus began the kingdom or somehow brought in the kingdom, then John would have been in the kingdom. And so then we have to ask ourselves, well, what would keep John out of the kingdom? John was the very one who preached that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so if the kingdom had now come, then John would be in the kingdom. D.A. Carson, who holds this kind of the kingdom now view that the kingdom's already, to some extent at least, initiated or inaugurated now, begun now. D.A. Carson says uh, 
that we who have been welcomed into the kingdom have a privilege beyond John. John, he says, was one of the, what was of the old era and we are of the new era. That's kind of D.A. Carson's view that, that, that we have, we, like you and me, even though John was so great, we have a privilege that's even greater than John. John was somehow of the old and we are of the new. Now, I think a good argument could be made that John was of the old era. John had, hadn't seen the cross yet, for example. He didn't know some of the things that maybe we know now. There's likely some things that, that we know today that John the Baptist didn't know. And knowing those things, I agree with D.A. Carson, it's a great privilege, but to say that we are greater than John, I think goes just too far. To think that we today are greater than John the Baptist, I think that's just, that's just not a tenable interpretation in my opinion. That would make the least Christian today, the very least Christian in the world today, greater than Moses, than David, than Samson, than Samuel, then Isaiah, you know, then all of the people who went before in human history. And I just, you know, I look at myself and I look at like some of you guys and I just think, well, you know, I'd like, I love you guys and all, but I, if we were planting a church, I'd sure love to have Moses here or Samuel or Samson or something like that, right? Like, and I think it, you'd probably look at me and say, well, I'd rather have some other preachers too, like, uh, you know, any, na- name any one of those guys. And so I just, I just don't think that that's a proper interpretation of this passage. So what does Jesus mean here then? I, you know, I, I, I just, I think very few of the greatest Christians were greater than John the Baptist. I just, I just, I just have to believe that. I think John the Baptist, even though he didn't know maybe a couple of things, I think he knew more than we give him credit for. And, uh, he'd be a great, he'd be a great member of Grace Bible Fellowship if he could come back somehow. Um, so I think it's much better to kind of stick what we've argued all the way along and as we've worked through Matthew. And, and, and here's what it is then. Both John and Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel. And they weren't offering a spiritual kingdom of salvation. And if you think about it, Israel always had a spiritual kingdom of salvation. Israel always had salvation. John and Jesus, uh, when they come, they seem to be offering Israel something new, something that they didn't already have. There was always like a, a saved remnant within Israel. And so there was always this kingdom of salvation, if you want to talk about it that way. There were always people who were born again by grace through faith, even in the Old Testament days, even in the old area under the old covenant in Israel. But John and Jesus were preaching that if Israel would repent, then the kingdom that was at hand would come. And the kingdom they spoke of is the reign of the Messiah over the whole world. It's the kingdom that's been spoken of in the Old Testament throughout the Old Testament. The kingdom where the Messiah King rules over a repentant Israel from the throne of David in Jerusalem and from there he rules over an obedient earth, an obedient world under the reign and rule of Jesus the Messiah. And when that kingdom comes, the least person in that kingdom and again, that kingdom has not come yet. When, but when that kingdom comes, the very least person that's in that kingdom is going to be greater than John is 
now, or, or by, and by now I mean at the time that Jesus spoke these words. The least person in that kingdom is going to be greater than John on the day that Jesus spoke these words. And so the comparison is between John at the time that Jesus was speaking and the least person who would be in the kingdom yet when it came. And of course, John himself, when that kingdom did come, would himself also be in that kingdom. And so Jesus then is switching the conversation from John and who John was to John's message about the kingdom because he wants to now challenge his listeners like Jesus always does. He challenges people to repent and accept this offer of the kingdom. Jesus uses every conversation to move people to a spiritual decision. And that's what he's doing now by switching from speaking about John to speaking about this least person in the kingdom. Now, chapter 11 and chapter 12 are going to show us that for the most part, Israel and her leaders did not respond correctly to this offer of the kingdom. And what that means then is that the kingdom which was near when the, when the king was walking on the earth, when Jesus was on the earth, that kingdom was near, but that kingdom has not yet come. And the kingdom then is still, at least in the way that I would interpret this passage, this kingdom is still entirely future. Now, with that and the way that I would like to say it, and, and I wasn't putting this in my notes, but the way that I would like to say this is that The kingdom is not yet here, but the new covenant was inaugurated. And so the the new covenant has began, and that started from the days of of maybe the church in Acts chapter 2. The new covenant has been inaugurated, and the spiritual blessings of that new covenant are available now to those who repent and believe. But that kingdom that's promised, that's tied together with the new covenant, that part is entirely future. And so in that sense, nobody is in the kingdom right now. We don't enter that kingdom until Christ returns the second time and comes and establishes that kingdom. And so there's a sense in which we could say that we don't enter that kingdom until Christ returns. But we do become citizens of that kingdom, and we become citizens of that kingdom now by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so we as believers are citizens of this kingdom of heaven, which is coming when Christ comes. And so in in that sense, as citizens... We can be said to enter the kingdom because we're, we're entering in as citizens, but we're still yet awaiting this coming kingdom. And so when we're saved, we're adopted into God's family, and then this kingdom becomes part of our eternal inheritance. And so in that sense, again, we could say that we enter the kingdom through salvation, but we don't really enter it until it's established when Christ returns. Now, one of the places where we could show what this means then, so now if we understand the kingdom rightly here, then let's think about what does it mean that the greatest or the least person in this kingdom is greater than John. And to show you that, I just want you to go to Matthew 13, and we'll just look at verses 36 to 43. So Matthew 13... 36 to 43, this is where Jesus explains the parable of the weeds of the field. And you can maybe read that parable on your own afterwards if you're interested, but in verse 37 says that the Son of Man, and that's Jesus, he sowed good seed. And then verse 38 tells us that the evil one sowed weeds in the field. And so the good seed represents saved people who are called sons of the kingdom, 
And the bad seed represents the unsaved that are called the sons of the evil one. And so look at verse 38. It says, Jesus says, and he's explaining this parable, he says, the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. This represents, again, saved people. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so at the end of the age, which we understand refers to the second coming of Christ, the angels are going to remove from the kingdom all the wicked. And then in the kingdom, we will experience us who are saved, the sons of the kingdom. In verse 43 again, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And it's at this point that we, you and I, whoever's a believer in Jesus Christ, we will be greater than John the Baptist. Although John the Baptist will be there too, and maybe at that time he'll be greater than he was then. But that's kind of the idea here. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And when we shine like the sun, we will also be entirely free from sin. We'll be in resurrected bodies with no remnants of our sinful flesh. We won't be able to sin ever again. And in that day, we will be greater than John than he was on the day when Jesus was speaking in our text. And so that's just a really encouraging verse. And Daniel also spoke about this time. And so I want you to turn to the book of Daniel and um, turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, um, we could start reading a little way into verse 1. Uh, where are we starting here? So Daniel 12, about halfway through verse 1. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so that also speaks about that time when we will be greater than John the Baptist. Go back to our, our text here then. Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And now Jesus says then that this kingdom that both he and John announced has suffered violence. And notice the period of time Jesus is referring to here. He says from the days of John until now. Now think about that. How long were the days of John until now? Maybe a year, maybe possibly two years, but this is a very short period of time from the days of John until the time that Jesus is speaking. From the days of John the Baptist would be from the day that John began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And from that time, the kingdom, Jesus says, has suffered violence. Another way to say this might be to say the message of the kingdom has suffered violence or the kingdom program has suffered violence. People have been resisting the kingdom from the days of John until now. And they've been resisting the kingdom by refusing to repent and by actively persecuting the messengers of the kingdom. Remember, John himself at this time was in prison because people, violent people, were resisting his message. Now the final clause in verse 12 says, the violent take it by force. And that word there translated take it means to seize, means to steal, means to snatch. Violent people who resist the kingdom are are stealing it so that the kingdom ultimately will not come at that time. Now this is different than, and and some people kind of take it this way, but this is different than striving to enter through the narrow door like Jesus says in Luke 13.24. This is, what we're seeing in Matthew 11.11 here in 12 is a very negative statement. And I think Matthew 23 describes it really well. Why don't you just turn to Matthew 23.13. Jesus says here, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you have shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allows, allow those who would Sorry, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so Jesus' rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees for the violence that they're doing and resisting the kingdom and snatching it from the people, Jesus rebukes them for that. You you haven't entered the kingdom, you haven't repented and believed, and you're not allowing others. You're resisting the that message from going forth. And so go back to our text here again, verse chapter 11. Look at verse 12. It's a a, a negative response to both John and Jesus and the offer of the kingdom to Israel. And then then Jesus says in verse 13, He says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So the prophets and the law, and it's, it's all of them, the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures kind of viewed as prophecy here, all of the Old Testament scriptures prophesied, they, they foretold of this time up until the coming of John. And they spoke of what would happen up to that moment of John's arrival. They predicted John the forerunner and Jesus the Messiah. And we've seen some examples of the prophets Isaiah and Malachi already, and they prophesied about John or until John or about John. But even the law spoke about the coming of this kingdom and true repentance that would happen in Israel kind of at the end time. And to show you just kind of one example, we've done this lots in Matthew because Matthew's always connecting what's happening with Jesus back to the Old Testament. But I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is going to show us a little bit about what the law prophesied right up until the coming of John. Deuteronomy 30, a very important passage to understand Old Testament prophecy. It's the 
promise of the new covenant, it's probably the, you know, unless we take Genesis 3.15 as the earliest promise of the new covenant, I think this is the, the, the clearest promise of the old, of the new covenant coming, um, already right in the law. And I want to, I'll read just from verse one to six here, and I'll kind of explain a little bit as we go. So Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse one, and it says, and when, and notice this word, when, when, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And so what we see here already is that Yahweh had predicted already in Deuteronomy that Israel would disobey and that they would disobey the, the covenant that they were entering into with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. And Israel would disobey and then they would be exiled among the nations as a form of punishment. And when this happened, they would be exiled and in exile... They would call to mind among the nations and remember what Yahweh had said. And so go back then to verse 2 and, and, and return. So, um, so when all of this which I have set before you and it, it all comes to pass and you call to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, and with all your soul. And so when they return at the very beginning of verse 2, in, in other words, there was going to be a repentance and a turning away from the sin when they're in exile. And so they were in exile because of their sin, and now Yahweh is predicting that when this happens and then they return, in other words, they repent, and they return to the Lord your God and to you and your children and obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, Verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. And this restore your fortunes becomes a really key word throughout the prophets to speak about this coming time, this future time that Yahweh promised here in Deuteronomy 30. And so the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there He will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live." And notice there, the Lord will, and, and note that He will circumcise the heart, causing the nation to love Yahweh with all their heart and all their soul. And so already in Deuteronomy, it speaks of a restoration of Israel and a return to the land. And that's going to happen when Israel turns from their sins to the Lord. And remember, throughout the book of Matthew, Israel is kind of viewed as, even though they're in their own land, they're really viewed as still in the exile because they're still under Roman rule. And so this already spoke of a time when, when God would restore their fortunes, but it would, it would happen in connection with repentance and this circumcision of the heart. And the prophets, they built on this message from Deuteronomy 30 with further revelation until it became clear that all of this that's described here would happen through a Messiah. 
Remember, a Messiah is an anointed one, an anointed prophet and priest and king. And this Messiah, prophet, priest, and king would save Israel spiritually and he would establish a worldwide kingdom over a restored earth. But before this kingdom would come, the nation would need to turn from their sin and turn to Yahweh. And to prepare them for that, a voice crying in the wilderness would call the nation to repentance and and he would call them, Isaiah 40 and verse 4 and onwards, to behold their God. And we saw that in Isaiah chapter 40. And this forerunner would come like Elijah the prophet. And and to see this, I want you to go to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. There's in, in Malachi 3.1, which we already read, we saw that this, this forerunner was called my messenger. But now in Malachi 4.1, <coughs> it says this, it says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts." Remember, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And I think this passage kind of ties a lot of what we've seen this this burning of the wicked we saw in that parable in Matthew chapter 13, this coming of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, there's, that's kind of a, a hint from already from Deuteronomy 30 where it talked about the children turning back to the Lord. And so this Elijah-like prophet is going to come before this day of the Lord and before this kingdom is established. And so before this great and awesome day when the wicked would be destroyed like bundles of dry weeds burned in a fire, Elijah would come and Elijah would turn the hearts of the people, the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. And this is describing the repentance that would happen before the Lord restores Israel's fortunes, before the kingdom is inaugurated. Now there's debate whether this is going to be literally Elijah or if this is just going to be a prophet like Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, I'll just read this passage for you. This is describing the birth of John the Baptist. Luke 1, starting in verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, then that's to to John's father, Zacharias, he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, and here's the really key phrase, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people 
prepared. And so John came in the spirit and power of Elijah to do exactly what Malachi had prophesied. But the people, they weren't responding correctly. There was some repentance, but not a complete circumcision of the whole nation as was prophesied even in Deuteronomy 30. Now, John himself, when he, when we, he was asked, are you Elijah? He said he wasn't Elijah. This is John chapter one and verse 19, the gospel of John. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John 1.20 says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, and this is a quote from Isaiah 40 again, I am of the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now I want you to turn with me then to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Look at verse 10. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration, or just after it. And the disciples asked Jesus here, the disciples asked Jesus, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And so all of this about Elijah comes into view in verse 14 of our text. And so go back to Matthew 14. Sorry, go back to Matthew 11 and verse 14. Matthew 11:14, Jesus says, "And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come." Now, the first question, at least at least for me, at least for an English speaker, I think when we look at this text is what is it? If you are willing to accept it, willing to receive what? And the Greek text actually just says, and if you are willing to receive or if you are willing to accept. And if they would accept, and I think what we want to fill in there is if they would accept the offer of the kingdom. And if they would accept, if Israel would accept the message of repentance, if they would accept John and Jesus for who they were, then the prophecy would be fulfilled. Malachi 3.1 and Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 1 to 5, or whatever that was, all of those prophecies would be fulfilled and the kingdom maybe would have come. John would have been the promised Elijah to come and all of the prophecy would have been fulfilled in that generation. But we'll see that Israel was not willing to accept and they did not repent and therefore the kingdom has not come yet. And so Jesus again inaugurated the new covenant, but not the kingdom. And he himself would be crucified and then rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and then one day he's going to return to establish the kingdom. And another Elijah then will come before that day. And perhaps that other Elijah, not John the Baptist, will be the a literal Elijah, the one who ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. 
Or perhaps he'll just be another one that came in the spirit and power of Elijah to do the kinds of things that Elijah did. Now, when we think about these kind of contingencies, these like what ifs, I think it's obviously a little bit difficult for us. Obviously, God knew that the what would happen. God knew that John and Jesus would offer the kingdom and, and that they would be rejected. God planned that the kingdom would be offered and God also planned that the nation would reject it. God planned everything that ever happened throughout human history. But he also deals with men and women in time and and he lets us make free choices and we are accountable for the choices that we make. We make choices at the same time that God has decreed those choices and the outcomes of those choices. And so the offer was a genuine offer, even though all along God knew that it would be rejected. The people had a decision to make. And verse 15 calls people to listen and choose carefully. Jesus kind of brings his message to a close when he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so this is a call from the Lord Jesus to pay attention. And it's a call not just to hear what Jesus is saying, but it's a call to heed what he's saying. See, Israel was at a crossroads here. They had to decide whether they would receive Jesus as the Messiah or not. And so we've seen then today ourselves, we've seen the significance of John the Baptist, who he was, and that he was this messenger who prepared prepared the way for the Lord. And by showing us the significance of John the Baptist, Jesus again reminds us of his significance, that he is this Messiah, this promised one to come. And then we saw the situation with the kingdom of heaven and and how things were, this offer of the kingdom to Israel. Israel was right in the midst of this great moment in redemptive history. They had a choice to make. The Messiah was right there in front of them, offering them the kingdom if they would but repent, turn away from their sins, and accept the Messiah. But once again, like we've seen so often throughout history, Israel failed. Once again, we see that without a new heart promised in Deuteronomy 30, without that circumcision of the heart, Israel would not love Yahweh with all of their heart and with all of their soul. And so as we think about how to apply this to ourselves, I think the question for us today is where, where are we at in redemptive history? What do we need to recognize today? See, God offers us salvation through Jesus Christ. And if we have that salvation, then we are sons of God and sons of the kingdom that will be established when Christ returns. And Jesus himself could come at any time, at any moment. He could come right now. Jesus could come this afternoon. He could come this week or he could come in 500 years. We don't know when he's going to return. But when he does come, we do know that it will be too late to change our mind. Israel went out to see John and they heard his offer. They heard his voice telling them to repent, but they didn't do it. They didn't really heed his call. They did not come to Christ. They did not become disciples of Jesus Christ. And so for you who hear me today, don't be like that. Don't put off following Christ for another minute. If you're kind of on the fence about, am I going to follow Christ? Am I going to live for Him? Am I going to turn away from my sins and come to Him and be a disciple of His? Then don't wait any longer. Don't wait until it's too late. You're at a crossroads as well, and it's time for you to come to Jesus Christ. 
and commit yourself to Him. He is the only Savior. He is the only way to have a relationship with God. And so I would urge you to repent and turn away from your sins and come to Christ and don't delay any longer. And for those of us who have come to Him and who know Him, Jesus Christ is our prophet, He's our priest, He's our King, and we look forward to His return. And when He comes, when Jesus comes back, He's going to judge this evil world. He's going to destroy His enemies in hell. He's going to establish everlasting righteousness. And on that day, as we have seen, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, will we be rewarded for how we served King Jesus now in the time that we live now? And we'll enjoy from that moment on fellowship with God forever, unhindered by anything. We will bask in God's presence forever. And so we that have made an initial decision to follow Christ, now we must moment by moment make decisions, little decisions to honor Him and serve Him every moment of our lives. I think that's how we apply this to ourselves. And we need to remember what the Lord Jesus says in Revelation 22. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. And then again in, in 22.12, He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. He's bringing His reward with Him to repay each one for what He has done. And so now is our time to serve the Lord with all our heart and all our soul because we who have come to Christ have that circumcised heart that He has promised already in Deuteronomy 30. And so we need to remember moment by moment to live for Jesus Christ and honor Him with our lives. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank You for our time together in Your Word. Thank You for this passage and explaining to us who John is, who Jesus Christ is, Your Son. Thank You, Father, for showing us about the kingdom and the promises that you have for us. Thank you, Father, for this promise that we ourselves will shine like the sun in in the kingdom. Thank you for the promise of the kingdom and the, the time that we look forward to and will enjoy unhindered fellowship with you. And we pray that you would help us as disciples of yours to live for you every moment, to decide for you just in every little thing of the day to follow after Jesus Christ and serve him and serve you. And Father, we pray now for those who might be here who are lost, who don't know you, who haven't come to this salvation. We pray, Father, that you would, by your sovereign grace and power, draw them to Christ, cause them to repent and turn, circumcise hearts. Even here today, Father, we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.